1: Books and South Asian Studies hosted by Tara Anjaria out of Mumbai, India. Today, however, we are going a wee bit northwards past Surat and Vadodara up to Ahmedabad, the commercial capital and primate city of Gujarat state. And have we got an expert to guide us around the Manchester of the East? Howard Spadek has been visiting, living, And we're surging in Ahmedabad since 1964. For all you mathematically inclined guys out there, that's almost 50 years. The shock city of 20th century India is what Howard calls Ahmedabad, justifiably. At once a centre of textile production, a base for both the Mahatma and the Sardar and the site of the appalling religion-linked violence that saw more than 2,000 Ahmedabadis, Hindu and Muslim, killed in 2002. This is a city that is now primarily famous for hosting the most sought-after of all the campuses of the Indian Institutes of Management. Perhaps it's time to reprise some of the rest of its history. Hello, Dara. Hello. Uh, Good morning, and uh, thanks very much for doing this
0: interview for the New
2: Books Network. My pleasure. Oh, great. Um, Well, it's a pleasure for us to talk to somebody who's like, you know, actually lived his research for about 50 years. So could you actually start off by telling us something about your career to date?
0: Well, the, the most important part, I suppose, for the people listening to this Interview would be how I got to Ahmedabad. Um, I began being interested in India really when I was finishing high school here in the United States and did a wonderful program at college uh, focused on Asia and Asian studies. And by the time I got to graduate school, I was studying India, and I received a fellowship to teach English in India. I didn't know where I would go. I didn't know where they would send me. Um, But when I got to Delhi, the director of the program said, we will send people to many different places. What would you like to study in addition to teaching English? And I said, economic development, industrial history. And she said, then you should go to Ahmedabad. And I said, okay. (laughs) I didn't really know what I was getting into. Uh, And that was in 1964. And since that time, Ahmedabad really has formed... The center of my detailed research, Uh, I mean, I write other things and do other things as well, but the detailed research that I do has always been on Ahmedabad. I've liked the city very much, and I've liked the people that I've met there very much. And it's really the people and the friendships that I've formed that keep me coming back, uh, and that keep me alert to what's going on in the city. Um, There are other parts of my career as well, but do you want to stay on this for a while, or...
2: Um, well, you could just talk about bits of your career that focus on your research, maybe in and around anybody, you know, related themes, whatever.
0: Well, the odd thing is the other area of the research is really quite different. Um, oh. In the late 80s, early 90s, uh, the city of Philadelphia, where I live, had a big program with high school teachers. Mm-hmm. The high school teachers were teaching a course in world history, But they all complained that they really did not know the subject very well. And so a program was set up to help the teachers understand the subject of world history. Well, I had gotten into studying India because I wanted to get a a larger view of the world than just my own. And India provided another way of seeing the world, a very different part of the world. So when I heard about this program, I became very interested in it. Because this was even bigger. I mean, it was the whole world. And it was working with teachers, which I liked a lot. I I, I thought high school teachers were just wonderful. I I thoroughly enjoyed working with them. And the more interested in the program I got, the more I became part of it. And finally, it led me to develop the field of teaching of world history into a second field of mine. Um, And I wrote a textbook in world history at the college level And so what's funny is that I've worked on one city and the world. (laughs) And and they're really two different parts. I'm now trying to do a little research. Maybe we can talk about it at the end that will a little bit bring these two areas together. But anyhow, my career has worked between these two areas, primarily Ahmedabad, primarily Indian history, modern Indian history. But I do have this other area in, in the world.
2: Um, So, going back to Anzabat, you first visited the place in
0: 1964.
2: And um, you seem to have made a lot of uh, friendships and contacts out there. Could you tell us something about, like, the most memorable professional relationships you've developed over the years?
0: Well, they've changed over the years, and that's been interesting. On the first trip, the people that I met sort of automatically... Were the people in the college where I was teaching? I was teaching in H.K. Arts College in Ahmedabad, and I immediately met the other faculty members there, um, and have kept in touch with several of them. Um, one of them, Jayant Joshi, uh, subsequently married the daughter of the principal, um, named Neela Joshi, and I keep in touch with him. He was he was uh, a literary scholar and. He has two children, one of whom is a, an author of films, is a, a film script author, Abhijat Joshi, who you may know. He wrote this, the film script for Three Idiots and for oh, yes. Lagerho Munabai. So, and his, his brother, Giant's other son and Nila's other son, uh, is a noted playwright in Ahmedabad also, uh, Somya Joshi, and he has plays that I think have played in Bombay as well. So here here, there was a friendship that began with the older generation continues on into the newer generation into really interesting things that are that are going on. Another friend was Ila ben Patak, who later founded an organization called Avaj uh, a women 's group <clears throat> working with women 's rights and also with the uh, women 's economic issues. Um, there were other people there as well who I met. Uh, I met an artist um, uh, a Um, I I met lots of, I mean, it's hard to remember all of them, but uh, Esther David was then an artist and she's now a writer. She won the Sahitya Academy Award this year for writing uh, in English and uh, she also was someone I met at the very first first visit. So from the very beginning, I was meeting people who were personally friendly and helpful, uh, who were professionally interesting, and whom I've kept in touch with forever. And then on each subsequent visit, there have been other people. The ones that, there was also on the first visit, there was Vidj Tripathi, uh, who was at the Indian Institute of Management. The Management Institute was just beginning then. It was just being launched in 1961, 62. People were coming over from Harvard to work with it. Dvij had taken his PhD at Wisconsin, so he was very acquainted with American scholarship as well as Indian scholarship. He also has become sort of a lifelong friend. Um, then on subsequent visits, uh, I came to know quite well uh, Ila Ben Bhatt, the head of Seva. And through her and with her, I've come to explore Seva. So I've written a, some short pieces on Seva, very in, an immensely important organization in Ahmedabad and in India. And then on another visit, I met uh, Bhimo Patel, the architect planner who is now doing some immensely important work on the riverfront development project in Ahmedabad, uh, some work on slum development, uh, and a lot of work on the expansion of the city, the ring roads. So each trip has brought me in touch with other people. There was also a fa- on the very first trip there was a family where I, I lived with the family, um, Murhanuddin Siddiqui and his family. And now Their children, their grandchildren, are going to medical school and studying medicine and uh, carrying on wonderful things. It was also an introduction to the Muslim community of Ahmedabad. So I've just been very fortunate in meeting some really wonderful people who have introduced the city to me. Uh, and, And each visit sort of brings new people.
2: Yeah, and you know, one of the remarkable things about it book, for example, I think it really showcases, you know, the intellectual side of Ahmedabad and, you know, the social organizations, you know, the cultural space. And that's not something that's often emphasized in the press, you know, it's just seen as an industrial city, as a sort of de facto capital of Gujarat.
0: So, I mean, um... Well, yes, I mean, I try... I- Yes. Well, yes, I tried to cover all of the aspects, sure. Even with Gandhi, I mean, the uh, one of the in, in all of the reading I've done about Gandhi, I have not read a great deal about his influence on Gujarati literature. Among the students of literature it's there, of course. But among the people that study Gandhi's politics and his importance to the nationalist movement there's not a lot that's been written about his impact on Gujarati letters, uh, hmm. but my friends who study Gujarati literature and have introduced Gujarati literature to me, uh, or have introduced me—yes, uh, introduced the Gujarati literature to me—they um, point out that Gandhi ushered in a new age in in Indian literature, in Gujarati literature, the, the Gandhi Yug that replaced the pundit Yug that his autobiography in particular and his general writings in Navjivan really in, introduced into Gujarati literature a much simpler s- style of writing, a much, uh, a much more uh, down-to-earth style of writing, and a concern with much more day-to-day problems of common people. That, of course, runs through his work generally. But these kinds of cultural issues, I think, were very important to his success in leading Gujarat politics. And you don't hear all that much You know, the people who talk about Gandhian literature talk about Gandhian literature. The people who talk about him in politics talk about him in politics. But really, I think the two go together.
2: No, and uh, you have a very interesting analysis about why Gandhi chose Anderbad, you know, as opposed to Mumbai or, you know, even Delhi as a base for himself. So,
0: do you think that... Yes, I mean, he wanted to... he tells him. Well, he tells us that he basically wanted to come back to to Mm Gujarat, But there's a second element, and and he saw the the businessman as being important to him. But there's a second element to that that I think I talk about in the book, and I'm working on a little bit now more. Um, He also needed a place where he could be in contact with the rest of the world without being overwhelmed by the rest of the world. And I think that Ahmedabad was that place, that in Bombay, with all of the things going on in Mumbai, or in those days Bombay, uh, he may or may not have been able to make the same impact. But Ahmedabad was well connected with the rest of the world, through trains, through telegraphs, what have you. At the same time, it was small enough that he could have a really important impact on the city. And I think that's also part of the reason he came. I just found out recently after the book was published, I didn't know this, but I just found out in the last couple of weeks from uh, somebody else who was writing on, on Ahmedabad in Bajra. I'm trying to think who it was. Um, oh, I, it was an article I was reviewing. That When Gandhi proposed coming to Ahmedabad, the shetiyas of the city said, this is good, we will support you for one year, and we'll see how it works out. They did not say, we will support you, period full stop. Okay. They said for one year. And there were negotiations between Gandhi and the businessman as to who would pay for what. He said, you know, if you simply say you will support me, then I will put up I'll take care of things myself. But if I'm only going to be here for one year and then we don't know, then you would have to put up more. He was quite the bunny. I mean he was <laughs> he was a businessman. And the discussions are really quite interesting. And of course everybody knows that in that first year, Gandhi invited an untouchable family, uh, an ashrusha family, to live in the ashram. And the, most of the Shatyas then refused to support him, with the exception of Ambal al sahaba So how did he manage to convince them
2: finally to sort of re support
0: him? I mean, how did he win them uh, over well, to... Well, I guess, the, you know, Gandhi's attraction, and it is interesting to study in Ahmedabad. Gandhi's attraction was very powerful, um, because he fought for independence, because he spoke of Indian nationalism, because he spoke of Gujarati nationalism, because he was a very uh, astute psychologist in dealing with people. He knew really how to talk to people. And he instilled pride and fearlessness in people. And while they might not have liked his connections with untouchables, I think there were many more things that were operating to make him attractive. Also, uh, you know, I, I don't know whether I write this in the book or not. I, I, I just don't know if it's there or not. When I first went to the office of the president of the Mill Owners Association in Ahmedabad, I was kind of surprised that behind his desk was a big picture of Gandhi wearing khadi, wearing his dhoti, you know. And I thought this is this is odd. Here is the head of the mill owners association with a picture of Gandhi wearing only a khadi dhoti. This is what, this, what does this do for business, you know? But in fact, Gandhi was very helpful to Indian business because he he effectively had people boycott in British goods.
2: Oh, yeah. And so, so he while would give the, a Philip to while India, so like he would give a
0: Philip to the local. I, I, yes, because. Yes. yes, and and, uh, and also he helped build the Textile Labor Association, the Majur Mahajan. And this was a union that by and large did not want to have strikes. So if you look at the industrial history of the 1920s and 30s and 40s, Mumbai, Bombay, had strikes and strikes and more strikes, and Ahmedabad did not. And I think the the, the business people like that as well. But they also, I mean, they liked his nationalism. They liked his Gujarati pride. They liked him as a person. They were very committed to him as a person. Yeah, you see, he
2: managed to attract a lot of support. I mean, he actually effectively formed a second run leadership in Gujarat. I mean, he had all these people yes. in the rally. and they like were attracted to him. To him. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I mean he had
0: all these people in Dula Yagnik By and the Yagnik the yeah. Yes, Yagnik is the one person who is known least outside of Gujarat. and that was another part of my career actually. I unfortunately I never met in Uh I, I he and I was in the city when he was there. He he died in 1972.
1: Uh, so I,
0: I there was, a, but I never met him. No one ever introduced us, and I didn't have the good sense to go and try to meet him. But when I read his autobiography in Gudraki, um, he just seemed to me an immensely important person. And I I wrote to the Smithsonian Institution in the United States. They had a grant category for translating books, and I received from them a grant to translate. Indulal's autobiography. It's an enormous piece of work. It's six volumes long in Gujarati. And I had the good fortune to to rope into the project um, Devrat Patak, Professor Devrat Patak, uh, recently deceased, two two or three years ago deceased, but Devrat I agreed to do a base translation of the entire six volumes. And then I I also roped in uh, John Wood from Mm -hmm. Canada, who's another specialist on modern Gujarati on modern uh, politics of Gujarat. And we worked with with Professor Patak, with Devrat Bhai, to Mm -hmm. polish up this translation, to make sure it was completely accurate and complete and read well in English. And this has been published now just this year, uh, two or three months ago, by Manohar in Delhi, uh, in full. And it was done with a subvention from the Gujarat Vidyapit, from Sudarshan Ayengar, who was the, the vice-chancellor of Gujarat Vidyapit, Darshan Bhai said this book should be published. Uh, we had, we had tra- when we translated it, we put it into scholarly archives so that a scholar could get hold of it, but only with difficulty. Now it's available as a published book. Uh, I hope that libraries will buy it. Maybe some individuals will buy it. Um, but it is now easily available, uh, just in the last two three months. And Indulal is really immensely important. Indulal was working in Mumbai. He was a very, very bright. He was a Nagar Brahmin, immensely well educated, studied in Mumbai, and started the publication of Navjivan. Um, the a, and when Gandhi came to India back from South Africa, Indulal was attracted by him, and between friends they brokered an agreement that Indulal would move the Navjivan publication to to Ahmedabad, and it would. Slowly become Gandhi's publication. Then Indulal didn't like that because Indulal really wanted a publication that would cover uh, uh, not just Gandhi, but would cover uh, cultural events that were that were unfolding—music, art, drama—and Gandhi really wanted a journal that would just cover himself and the movement. Finally, Indulal left it because he thought it was too narrow. But he was a he's a very interesting man. Um, he comes back in the 50s to push for the Maha-Gujarat movement. And you'll find him in the book again in the 50s, uh, where he leads the Maha-Gujarat movement. And then he leads movements among the mill workers. He felt that the, the Gandhi's union, the TLA, the Madur Mahajan, was not militant enough. And he was very active in trying to get the workers to be more militant. Um, and they elected him. He was elected to parliament four times, in 1957, in 62, in 67, in 72, and then he died shortly after that. Um, not very active in Parliament, in, in, the, in the Lok Sabha, not very active, but he was there, and uh, a very interesting character. Yeah,
2: could you tell us something more about his role in the Mahagujrat movement?
0: Well... It depends who you ask. You know? <laughs> he was the spokesman for the Mahagudra movement. That's clear. Uh, he was the voice. Uh, he was the energy. Uh, there are other history, and he, he writes about this. His autobiography actually ends about 1958, so we don't get to the end of the Mahagujarat movement. There are writings of his about the movement at the end of the book, but they aren't autobiography. They're, they're just writings about the movement as he was participating. We didn't translate them. But some of the students who were active in the Gujarat movement claimed that they were the energy behind the movement and that Indulal simply represented the voice. He was, a very, he was a senior, he was born in 1892. So by this time, he was uh, 65, 68 years old. And he was highly respected, uh, a wonderful sp- public spokesperson. So the students say we were the energy, he was the voice. He said he was the voice and the energy. <laughs> it depends whom you ask. But he certainly was the leader of it, and there's a wonderful statue of him uh, in downtown Ahmedabad, just across the the Nehru Bridge on the city side of the of of the bridge. Uh, there's this wonderful bronze statue of Indulal striding forward, major character. Um, I point out in the book that most of the most of the people I write about built institutions. Uh, they were institution builders. They built the Congress. They built the TLA. They built the uh, they, the, the Ahmedabad Mill Owners Association was already in existence, but they promoted it. They were very influential in the city government, in the metropolitan, uh, in the in the, uh, in the in the municipal corporation. Uh, they built the IIM. They brought the IIM to Ahmedabad. They built Jain institutions. They built lots of things. They built Gandhian institution, the Jyoti Sam. Lots of institutions. Indolal did not, and as a result. I think people begin to forget him, uh, and, and, and that's that's kind of a shame, um, but he, he was he was the voice of the Bhagavad
2: And uh, he was a very perceptive person, there's a passage in the I, That
0: was system. your question, yes? Yeah,
2: yeah on uh, page 46, where you talk about, you know, his feelings when he shifted from Bombay to bath you know, he talks about how he became, you know, less intellectual, but you know. More
0: well open, yes. yeah, yeah. That's a very interesting passage. Could you comment on that? Well, it's I, I could read it. I mean, there's not much to comment. It is an interesting observation. Yeah. He says that the the, the, uh, the two cities were very different, and he felt different in each of the cities. Um, um, let's see. It's on page. It's forty-six. Yes. Yes. Yeah. He says at first, and this is from the book, it's from his autobiography as we translated it, and then he did, at first I enjoyed the comparatively orthodox society and contacts in Ahmedabad because I enjoyed the novelty of it. My habit of study and gaining new knowledge decreased. Although I stayed in the city, I traveled daily in villages. While my heart got larger with my love for the village, my intelligence and imagination got more constricted. I was like a lover of an illiterate but beautiful woman. My old scientific flights of intelligence became less frequent. My heart and my nature became warmer. And now my devotion to my political guru Gandhiji was very intense. He worked 24 hours and asked the same from others. My love and daily contact with the brothers and sisters of Gujarat roused my heart a great deal. In the new circumstances, as my old thoughtfulness my old thoughtful intelligence cooled. My warm love for men inspired my capacity for work, my nature, the tempo of my daily activities, and my power of performance. So he does see a very special quality to Ahmedabad. And I would, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I, it certainly had that sort of effect on me. I can't say that my intelligence had gotten dimmer. But I certainly have found Ahmedabad a very welcoming place for me.
2: That's, again, a very you know different view of them. The Bad. no, you just get this view Manchester of the East. Um, so could you tell us something about and the bad mills? And that's obviously another side of the city.
0: Well, yes. I mean, the book itself is divided into three sections. So far, you've asked really only about the first section.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: but the uh, the mills are the important part of the second section. I was going. Yeah. So,
1: Maybe, you'll uh, the... uh, <laughs> Maybe you'll
0: edit out the sneeze. The sneeze. Maybe edit out. Anyhow. <laughs> yeah, the okay, second section. Yeah. The second section deals with the mills. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are what made Ahmedabad the wealthy place that it was, mm-hmm. and they continue. They continue to grow through the sixties and and up to the seventies, and by the seventies they begin to cut back. Um, mm-hmm. And they are done in by the growth of power loops, not by competition from elsewhere. But at their, when I arrived in Ahmedabad, I, I really came to study the mill industry. And I, I was told there were some 75 mills operating, more or less. Uh, and they employed about 150,000 people, more or less. And they were owned primarily by a few families. And it was interesting. People told me, oh, there are six or seven families that are most dominant. And then later they told me that really the two most, most dominant families were those of Kasturbai Lalbai and Ambalal Sarabai. Uh, and Ambalal controlled the calico mill, which was the largest single mill. And uh, Kasturbai controlled a whole series of, I think seven, uh, surrounded by Arvin. I mean, Arvin Mill was the central one. Both by this time had already begun to diversify into chemicals and pharmaceuticals. Uh, uh, Kasturbai to Valsar and Ambalal to Bombay and Baroda and other places. Uh, so the textiles for them, for the city, textiles were still most important. But for them, they had begun to move on a little bit. But the mills were immensely important. They employed 150,000 people. I mean, it's enormous. And that's direct employment. And you have to figure the number of people in the family. So those people who said it really is just a mill city, We're not mistaken. I mean, it's... uh... And then, just at the time I was arriving, I think that the mill owners understood clearly uh, that they would have to diversify. They had made immense profits in World War II, and I talk about that a little bit. There were years, there were one or two years during World War II when they made more profits than the entire value of the mill. I mean, they ran day and night, and they they made enormous profits. And they began to see that they wanted to add new cultural elements to their city beyond the, the basic Gujarati elements, which were always there, continued there. I mean, Kasturbai built the Jain Institute of Indology in Ahmedabad. Uh, he took his Jain religious cultural issues very seriously, um, but at the same time, they they built the Atira, the Textile Research Association. Uh, they brought uh, they brought the Um, the Indian Institute of Management to Ahmedabad. They created the NID, the National Institute of Design in Ahmedabad. Um, They began, they they saw the importance of these international organizations. Most people credit that to three people, and two of them get chapters. Uh, 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 I'm sorry, uh, Ambalal and uh, Kastobai get their space. And then Vikram Sarabhai, Ambalal's son, went to Cambridge and came back with a degree in, in uh, not astrophysics, nuclear physics, I suppose. He became the, nuclear, the atomic energy commissioner in India. And he was very interested in his own city and wanted to build it up. He had the, everyone credits him, with an immensely attractive personality, brilliance in, in, in his thoughts, immensely well connected, the son of Umbalal, Umbalal and Really, he worked most closely with Kasparabai. and uh, together they brought the management institute to Amdavad. And then Vikram's wife uh, founded the Dharpana Institute. Uh, Rinalini Sarabhai founded the Darpana Dance Academy. Uh, this, his sister Giraben Sarabhai, uh, Gira Sarabhai founded the Calico Museum. So this was a time in the '60s when the city was committed to its industry, no question. But it was also expanding culture. It was also expanding across the river. Uh, and I think that's actually where I begin the book and then discuss it again in the second part. The okay. whole area of Ellis Bridge on the west side of the river was developed in the Umpti. The Ujrat University was built in 1949, I think it was founded. Then it was building in the 50s and 60s. Uh, the Management Institute was over there. Atira uh, was over there. The Physical Research Laboratory was over there. Later, ISRO, the Indian uh, Space Research Organization, was built. Up. I found it amusing because of the Space Research Organization, there was a whole area of Ahmedabad called Satellite. Um, there's a, it's a it's a it's a area in the in the western part of the city. The whole area is called Satellite because ISRO. Yeah,
2: it's uh, that on the map. Yeah.
0: Uh, so they were building lots and lots of institutions. The mills were the basis of it. I mean, the wealth of the mills were the basis, and then there was the industrial diversification uh, and then there was the uh, the movement to, nu- to, to to the cultural institutions. Um, the treatment of workers was always at question. The union did what it could. Um, Any time people came to Ahmedabad, they obviously saw this enormous disparity between the wealth of the owner and capitalist class and the poverty of the workers. The question was, how how much money should workers make? And that's always the question between labor and management. Uh, Labor always says we should make more. Management always says no, no, no. Uh, Personally, I tend to side with labor. This would be true in the United States as well. Uh, where the disparities of wealth, as you know, are growing, um, but that's an issue, and the workers clearly had hard times. But there was attention to them, and again, partly through the union, and partly because people like Indulal said the union isn't doing enough, uh, the union had to become more responsive. Also, um, there were institutions that they find it in the book: the, the building of the of the zoo, the building of the. Uh, of the uh, Bal, uh, Balgar, the, the children's areas around Lake Concordia, all these were building at the same time. Um, but the, the question of how the profit should be dispersed is always a question in any kind of capitalist system, in any society.
2: So, do you think that because of, you know, Andhra status as like the primary city of the Gujarat region, that actually helped it to, well, Gandhinagar is pretty much, you know, a twin city of the place. What do you think that actually helped
0: them to build the capital you chose? money? Well, that was an issue. Apparently, Uh, the the mill owners didn't. They there was a question of whether you should build a new city or not. There were some who said keep the whole thing in Ahmedabad, and there were others who said build a new city. the decision was to build a new city. In the division of the, in the bifurcation of Bombay State, money was set aside to build a new capital because Bombay could no longer serve as the capital. Uh, They hired a new architect, an Indian architect, um, and, uh, and did decide to build it. At first, people didn't move out there. It took a long time. The decision was made in 1960. I think the actual functioning seriously began in 1970. Um... There were those who didn't like the idea because it was hard to get to the lawmakers. It was hard to get to the to the, to the the state government, to the state representatives. At first, the representative didn't like it either because they lived in Ahmedabad for the most part and they found Ahmedabad more comfortable. As time has gone on, you're right, it's become a, a sort of a second suburban city. People who live in Gandhinagar seem to like it a lot. It's spacious, it's got a lot of greenery, uh, the weather... It's got enough greenery that the climate is a little better than Ahmedabad's, uh a little cooler. Uh, the schools are supposed to be pretty good. But the two have grown together. You can take a bus from one to the other in 45 minutes, and the the road is lined up with all kinds of new institutions, educational. There's a Nirma institution. There's an Adani institution. Uh, there are some businesses that have grown up along there. A lot of housing colonies are growing up along there. So the two are growing together.
2: And the the other thing you mentioned about uh, the Reliance industry, you tell Ambani, what kind of like impact have they had on Ambad? Because obviously, for Gujarat and India as a whole, you know, they're the biggest industrialists around here. What's their contribution to the yes,
0: Ambani is not important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ambani is not so important in Ambad. He he built the uh, Reliance uh, poly polyester mill, mm-hmm. Vimal. Uh, and at the time, it was important to his enterprises. It did give him a, a springboard. But now he's so important in so many, or the family is so important in so many other things, petrochemicals and the like, that while Vimal served as the springboard, and I do mention that, that it served as the springboard, it now is a very small, small piece of his whole empire. They are coming back with institutes for education, again in that sector between Ahmedabad and uh, and Gandhinagar. Uh, institutes for Management and Institutes for uh, uh, Infotech, for Information Technology. Um, but his big industries, his big major industries are not there. Okay, what also made Ahmedabad kind of interesting was that the textile mill owners, this was not only the place of their industry, this was their home. Uh, that is not true for the Umbo. Uh Their home is Bombay.
2: Yeah, that's true. But uh, off late, obviously, ever since uh, Narendra Modi became chief minister, he's been on this drive, you know, to attract new industry to Gujarat. So how has that actually affected the industrial side of things in India?
0: Well, industrialists are mostly very happy with him uh, because the industry has, has been growing and he is a spokesperson for industrialization uh, and very active in that field. Uh, so that most people see this, uh, people speak about his his administration as being very pro business. Yeah. Um, many businessmen say, you know, we are Gujarati business people. As long as you leave us alone, we'll do very well. Um, and and certainly, there you don't hear anything about uh, in, in interference in business in in terms of government bothering people. Quite the contrary, you hear about government helping business. Um, sometimes you hear that the that. Certain government decisions, the good part is government decisions tend to be made very quickly and very favorably toward business. Sometimes people question whether the decision-making process isn't too narrowly held. That is, that the chief minister is involved in everything. But the decisions that he makes, by and large, for business have been viewed very positively. In in Gujarat and around the country. Uh, And, you know, he's been able... To, to see possibilities, the, the creation of the SEZs, uh, the attraction of the nano plant uh, in Sunund, uh, have been viewed very much in his favor. And uh, obviously, when you talk of Modi, unfortunately, we can't avoid the
2: subject of 2002. But uh, how would you judge the rehabilitation process? I mean, How have people gone about making well, think... a safer city to live in now?
0: Well, one of the responses to 2002 has been the creation of a very divided city physically. Uh, The the physical divisions in the city, the the physical social, the neighborhood divisions, are extreme now, Uh, and I write a little bit about that. The area of Jawapura has been, is almost entirely a Muslim neighborhood. Uh, I note, I think there's a footnote there talking about a, Hindu friend who went through there and said, oh, look, people said, oh, there's a Hindu here, how odd, you know. Not, not, not in a hostile way, just in a sort of a, we don't see many Hindus out here. Um, and Joapura is a very, in terms of class, very mixed. It's got 250,000, two and a half lakhs of people. I, I've never seen actual data, so there may be some Hindus there, but the, certainly most people believe that it is almost exclusively uh, Muslim area, and I, I think that that is probably true. There may be—I'm sure there are exceptions. There would have to be It's a, such a large area, but but that's mostly true. And to the south of it is an area uh, less well developed called Bombay Hotel, uh, which is all of these areas have been populated as Muslims feared for their life and safety. Uh, there were a series of riots. Uh, 2002 was the the worst, an uh, almost equally bad one occurred, maybe even equally bad in 1969. But that was seen as a fluke. No one saw that as a continuing process. Then in 85 there were riots. uh, And that was really the beginning of Jawapur. It begins with the 85 riots when Muslims felt unsafe. Um, And then again in 2002. So and that whole area, I I think you mentioned to me that you had not visited Ahmedabad, but if you go out the Sarkage Road, uh, from Jawapur all the way out to the Sarkage Rosa, uh, it's very Muslim area. And it's because people feel unsafe. I'm told that Hindus also have moved. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, because this was something that happened in uh, Bombay as well after the
2: 1992 riot, and It's still very segregated, Bombay.
0: So I think that's. Well, and this a, segregation. Yeah. Well, this segregation will have impacts for years to come. Um, yeah. Because when people grow up out of contact with one another, they tend not, they don't know each other. They don't know each other as living human beings. And one of the the reasons that personally I've always been attracted to Ahmedabad is that my own personal circle of friends has included people from a whole variety of communities. And in, in the 1960s, for me as a foreigner and as a researcher, that always remains open. But it was open to everybody in the city in the 60s. And everyone tells me it's much more difficult. It's more difficult to have friends who are of different religions, different ethnicities.
2: Um,
0: It it, it doesn't happen so naturally. People aren't living in the same neighborhoods. They don't go to the same schools. Um, Now, in public, it's my impression over the years that since since 2002, that in areas that were more Hindu, uh, you do see more Muslims. I, my my living experience in Ahmedabad tends nowadays to be out in the university areas. That's where more of my friends live and more of my research takes me. But in those areas, there are relatively few Muslims. And now I begin to see in restaurants, in public places, in the malls, there are more Muslims. And, Some people tell me that's because the Muslims have begun more increasingly to dress as Muslims. Uh, The women in burqas, uh, the men growing beards. So they're telling me it's really the same number, but they're more more visible. I don't know. I I think it's more, people are feeling safer. They're feeling a little more, uh, a little more at ease. And of course, one of the issues that came up, this is an article I'm working on now in a way, is that, Gujarat suffered for the for the riots in two thousand two. It got a very bad reputation, Ahmedabad in particular, where the riots were worse. And I think that the message became pretty clear to business people and to the political people that you can't do this. Uh, that that killing people, allowing people—maybe not killing, allowing people to be killed—it uh, it it's not good, and it it creates a very bad. It's it's obviously bad in itself, killing people is a bad thing, but if you want to build up a city and you have a reputation as a city of riots, it's not a good thing. And I think that on all levels, people have sort of said, we're not going to have this happen again. Um, And uh, and it hasn't happened again. You never know. I mean, one doesn't know. Uh, But the public attitudes are, this was not a good thing, and it shouldn't happen again. you don't. Modi doesn't talk about it at all. I mean, he doesn't want it discussed or mentioned, I don't think. He doesn't talk about it. Uh, the business leaders that I talk to say, you know, this was a bad thing, we don't want this to happen again. Uh, one never knows. The, the segregation is there, and that will have lasting effect. I think. How, I don't know. I mean, I couldn't tell you what. But when people live together, they relate to each other differently than when they live separately. And if they are so frightened of one another that they say, we cannot live In the same neighborhood, we are in danger. It's true also for Hindus, but far fewer Hindus, I mean very few Hindus, lived in Muslim neighborhoods. The old walled city, I am told, has become increasingly Muslim as Hindus have moved out. Um, I've not studied that carefully. My impression is that Qadiyah in the old city is still very Hindu. But lots of areas that were mixed have become more more Muslim. Uh, It's not a good, I mean, I don't think it's a good thing for a place, for a city.
2: There is one interesting thing. And the has yet gotten down to changing its name to
0: Karality. Yes, this was a move on the part of the BJP when it took over the city government and the state government, uh, and effectively, uh, it says we don't want to recognize the, the, the Muslim foundation of our city. When, it, when the issue went to the central government, which was Congress-controlled, they said nothing doing. Uh, and so it hasn't happened. I, I doubt that it will happen. But periodically, the BJP local government will will use as its stationary the name Karnavati rather than Ahmedabad. But I haven't, truthfully, haven't looked at this very carefully lately. But yes, it was a big thing in the 80s when the BJP controlled the city and the state and they said, let's forget about Ahmed Shah, Sultan uh, in 1411. Let's look back to Karnavati. Um, there's another new book on Ahmedabad by Achut Yagnik and Suchitra uh, Shah, Sutra Shet, I guess, uh, that also talk about uh, Ahmedabad. They do go into this issue of the name change, and they do go into this issue of Ashaval and, and Karnavati as towns that may have been in the Ahmedabad area. But uh, and they also see Ahmedabad clearly as the foundation of a new, a new city, uh, uh, as the capital of the state taking on new importance.
2: And there's this very interesting uh, thing on page 265 and uh, where you talk about a lot of the relief camps, you know, after the riots that they were actually run by the local mafia. And uh, so is there something like an underworld scene in Ahmedabad, you know, like Bombay, we have got a big underworld scene. Is there anything comparable in Ahmedabad? Would
0: you add, I didn't hear the end of the question about the Ahmedabad mafia. I didn't hear the rest of it.
2: Oh, okay. Uh, well, basically, you just mentioned on uh, page 265... You know about how the relief camps after the riots, like two of them were run by like the local gangsters. Yes. And uh, I mean, in Mumbai, you know, we've got a big well, underworld scene. Is there anything comparable in
0: Dubai? Uh Well, Bombay has us trumped on that. I think uh, the Mumbai and <laughs> and uh, uh, what is it, Dawood Ibrahim, and uh, you do have people that, that they're they're in another class beyond us, but. Uh, there was a period, and I write about this in the, in the 80s, where there was a man named Latif, uh, Abdul Latif, who was head of an important mafia group in Ahmedabad, headed by bootleggers. Of course, Ahmedabad has prohibition. And yes. once you have prohibition, as we learned in Chicago and in the United States, once you have prohibition, you're going to have a bootlegging industry. And while it is in honor of Gandhi that you set it up, it's, the profit is taken by the bootleggers, the police, and the politicians. So you have an infrastructure there of people who are involved, especially the gangs, who are involved in illegal businesses. And my friends in the United States point out that when you have illegal businesses, they cannot go to the courts for their business. So they must have their own enforcers. I mean, you cannot, you cannot go to the court and say, I sold this man liquor illegally and he hasn't paid me. You can't do that. So you have to have your own enforcers. And then these people become available. The, 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 the gangs become available on hire. In the 80s, I think I, I don't know what the composition is now between Hindus and Muslims. My guess is, I really don't know, I shouldn't say, I just don't know. In the 80s, it was uh, a lot of it was controlled by Muslims. And so when there were riots, the Muslim gangs came to the aid and assistance of people who were in trouble. Uh, they didn't do it as mafia leaders. You know, they didn't do it as part of their illegal business. They had the resources to be able to bring help to these people, and they did it. And they did it at a time in 2002. They did it at a time when the government was not very responsive. Uh, The relief camps, from all that I've read, I wasn't there in 2002. My next visit was in 2004, I think. So I wasn't there at the time of the worst part of the riot. But from all that I've read, the government was not, very helpful in setting up relief works. So it wasn't just a mafia, it was private groups, it was yeah. you know, Muslim business people, it was SEVA, it was various NGOs, everybody who could help.
2: Yeah, so they have to have some kind of parallel administrative structure, you know, look after themselves. Yes. And uh, speaking of prohibition, uh, there's a really interesting uh, article in the paper a few weeks ago, apparently one part from it was very popular and in the past these days. Um actually the root leckers uh, inject water kind tomatoes after replacing tomato juice and these are then sold, you know, like ordinary tomatoes. And uh, the sabarang gives the government.
0: I, I didn't I, I, I'm not aware. Oh, but, but you know, there've been, again <laughs> I have a I have a good friend here in Philadelphia who studies crime in America mm-hmm. and he says that illegal crime is uh, illegal crime is just another business. Yeah, but it's a special business because it's illegal. But it's a business, and the people act as business people. But they also have to do payoffs.
2: Mm. Uh, like academia, which is also another line of business. But Mr. Um, We've taken up a lot of your time today, and uh, could you just tell us something about your future research, your ongoing research?
0: Well, yeah, I'm coming back to Ahmedabad in September. I have a grant from the American Institute of Indian Studies. What's happened as I finished this book and as I was working on it, I found that many of my friends in Ahmedabad are city planners in one fashion or another. And they they are really quite close personal friends, as well as colleagues in research and the like. And I've had many discussions with them about the way in which city planning is going on. Uh, And they come to it from a wide variety of perspectives. There are people that are concerned with the riverfront development project. There are people that are concerned with historic preservation. Ahmedabad has just applied for UNESCO recognition as a historic city. There are people concerned with with historic preservation. There are people concerned with the new transport lines, the BRTS, the, the bus rapid transit system. There are several different approaches to slum development, people working in the slums. And I've had fascinating conversations with these people. Some of the conversations are recorded. Most are not. What I want to do when I come in September, I'll be there for most of the year, is to record some of these conversations and produce some kind of report, perhaps a book, on the status of city planning in the city that will bring the book into questions of the present and the future. it will be kind of the next the next look at the city. Uh, I'm looking forward to it very much because I really like the people so much and I like the city so much that it enables me to, to look at both. And they're, they're not all in agreement. I mean, many of them have very differing opinions from one another. Uh, so it will be also a question in values of what are their values as they see the city? And what are my values? Um, you know, we were talking earlier about the mill workers and the mill owners. The question of how profits should be divided is a question of values, and so is the question of how a city should be organized. So I am looking forward to it.
2: Um, Yes, Robert, I think we are all looking forward to it, because I think it's not very studied. Very often the focus tends to be on Bombay, you know, western India. But it's been really insightful, you know, having this discussion with you, and I'm sure our listeners are going to feel the same. So thank you very much for doing this interview with us.
0: Thank you, it's been a pleasure, and uh, Bombay is just uh, overnight by train, an hour by plane. Plenty of time to go up and visit on the bar. Sure,
2: definitely. Um, Thanks again.
1: Goodbye. Thank you. So, Fox, that was sure a privilege. A peek into the people, institutions, and forces that have contributed to the formation of this often unregarded metropolis. Gujarat's commercial capital has been the stomping ground of some of modern India's most influential politicians. And Howard's book is a timely reminder of Ahmedabad's pan-Indian linkages. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Goodbye.